The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner, continued, Cassette 9, Side 2. Now is not, to introduce the liberal concept of it at once, the human and truly human life the true one? And is everyone already leading this truly human life from the start? Or must he first raise himself to it with hard toil? Does he already have it as his present life? Or must he struggle for it as his future life, which will become his part only when he is no longer tainted with any egoism? In this view, life exists only to gain life, and one lives only to make the essence of man alive in oneself. One lives for the sake of this essence. One has his life only in order to procure by means of it the true life, cleansed of all egoism. Hence, one is afraid to make any use he likes of his life. It is to serve only for the right use. In short, one has a calling in life, a task in life. One has something to realize and produce by his life, a something for which our life is only means and implement, a something that is worth more than this life, a something to which one owes his life. One has a God who asks a living sacrifice. Only the rudeness of human sacrifice has been lost with time. Human sacrifice itself has remained unabated, and criminals hourly fall sacrifices to justice, and we poor sinners slay our own selves as sacrifices for the human essence, the idea of mankind, humanity, and whatever the idols or gods are called besides. But because we owe our life to that something, therefore, this is the next point, we have no right to take it from us. The conservative tendency of Christianity does not permit thinking of death otherwise than with the purpose to take its sting from it and live on and preserve oneself nicely. The Christian lets everything happen and come upon him if he, the arch-Jew, can only haggle and smuggle himself into heaven. He must not kill himself, he must only preserve himself and work at the preparation of a future abode. Conservatism or conquest of death lies at his heart. The last enemy that is abolished is death. Christ has taken the power from death and brought life and imperishable being to light by the gospel. Imperishableness, stability. The moral man wants the good, the right, and if he takes to the means that lead to this goal, really lead to it, then these means are not his means, but those of the good, right, etc., itself. These means are never immoral, because the good end itself mediates itself through them. The end sanctifies the means. They call this maxim Jesuitical, but it is moral through and through. The moral man acts in the service of an end or an idea. He makes himself the tool of the idea of the good, as the pious man counts it his glory to be a tool or instrument of God. To await death is what the moral commandment postulates as the good. To give it to oneself is immoral and bad. Suicide finds no excuse before the judgment seat of morality. If the religious man forbids it because you have not given yourself life, but God, who alone can also take it from you again, as if, even taking in this conception, God did not take it from me just as much when I kill myself as when a tile from the roof or a hostile bullet fells me, for he would have aroused the resolution of death in me too, the moral man forbids it because I owe my life to the fatherland, etc., because I do not know whether I may not yet accomplish good by my life. Of course, for in me good loses a tool, as God does an instrument. If I am immoral, the good is served in my amendment, 
If I am ungodly, God has joy in my penitence. Suicide, therefore, is ungodly as well as nefarious. If one whose standpoint is religiousness takes his own life, he acts in forgetfulness of God. But if the suicide standpoint is morality, he acts in forgetfulness of duty, immorally. People worried themselves much with the question whether Emilia Golotti's death can be justified before morality. They take it as if it were a suicide, which it is, too, in substance. That she is so infatuated with chastity, this moral good, as to yield up even her life for it is certainly moral. But again, that she fears the weakness of her flesh is immoral. Such contradictions form the tragic conflict universally in the moral drama, and one must think and feel morally to be able to take an interest in it. What holds good of piety and morality will necessarily apply to humanity also, because one owes his life likewise to man, mankind, or the species. Only when I am under obligation to no being is the maintaining of life my affair. A leap from this bridge makes me free. But if we owe the maintaining of our life to that being that we are to make alive in ourselves, it is not less our duty not to lead this life according to our pleasure, but to shape it in conformity to that being. All my feeling, thinking, and willing, all my doing and designing belongs to him. What is in conformity to that being is to be inferred from his concept. And how differently has this concept been conceived, or how differently has that being been imagined? What demands the supreme being makes on the Mohammedan? What different ones the Christian again thinks he hears from him? How divergent, therefore, must the shaping of the lives of the two turn out? Only this do all hold fast, that the supreme being is to judge our life. But the pious who have their judge in God, and in his word a book of directions for their life, I everywhere pass by only reminiscently, because they belong to a period of development that has been lived through, and as petrifactions they may remain in their fixed place right along. In our time it is no longer the pious, but the liberals who have the floor, and piety itself cannot keep from reddening its pale face with liberal coloring. But the liberals do not adore their judge in God, and do not unfold their life by the directions of the divine word, but regulate themselves by man. They want to be not divine, but human, and to live so. Man is the liberal's supreme being, man the judge of his life, humanity his directions or catechism. God is spirit, but man is the most perfect spirit, the final result of the long chase after the spirit, or of the searching in the depths of the Godhead, that is, in the depths of the spirit. Every one of your traits is to be human. You yourself are to be so from top to toe, in the inward as in the outward, for calling, destiny, task. What one can become, he does become. A born poet may well be hindered by the disfavor of circumstances from standing on the high level of his time, and after the great studies that are indispensable for this, producing consummate works of art. But he will make poetry, be he a plowman or so lucky as to live at the court of Weimar. A born musician will make music, no matter whether on all instruments or only on an oaten pipe. A born philosophical head can give proof of itself as university philosopher or as village philosopher. Finally, a born dolt, who, as is very well compatible with this, may at the same time be a slyboots, will, as probably everyone who has visited schools is in a position to exemplify to himself by many instances of fellow scholars, 
always remain a blockhead. Let him have been drilled and trained into the chief of a bureau, or let him serve that same chief as bootblack. Nay, the born shallowpates indisputably form the most numerous class of men. And why indeed should not the same distinctions show themselves in the human species that are unmistakable in every species of beasts? The more gifted and the less gifted are to be found everywhere. Only a few, however, are so imbecile that one could not get ideas into them. Hence, people usually consider all men capable of having religion. In a certain degree, they may be trained to other ideas too, to some musical intelligence, even some philosophy. At this point, then, the priesthood of religion, of morality, of culture, of science, etc., takes its start. And the communists, for instance, want to make everything accessible to all by their public school. There is heard a common assertion that this great mass cannot get along without religion. The communists broaden it into the proposition that not only the great mass, but absolutely all, are called to everything. Not enough that the great mass has been trained to religion, now it is actually to have to occupy itself with everything human. Training is growing ever more general and more comprehensive. You poor beings who could live so happily if you might skip according to your mind, you are to dance to the pipe of schoolmasters and bear leaders in order to perform tricks that you yourselves would never use yourselves for. And you do not even kick out of the traces at last against being always taken otherwise than you want to give yourselves. No, you mechanically recite to yourselves the question that is recited to you. What am I called to? What ought I to do? You need only ask thus to have yourselves told what you ought to do and ordered to do it, to have your calling marked out for you, or else to order yourselves and impose it on yourselves according to the Spirit's prescription. Then, in reference to the will, the word is, I will to do what I ought. A man is called to nothing and has no calling, no destiny, as little as a plant or a beast has a calling. The flower does not follow the calling to complete itself, but it spends all its forces to enjoy and consume the world as well as it can. It sucks in as much of the juices of the earth, as much air of the ether, as much light of the sun as it can get and lodge. The bird lives up to no calling, but it uses its forces as much as is practicable. It catches beetles and sings to its heart's delight. But the forces of the flower and the bird are slight in comparison to those of a man. And a man who applies his forces will affect the world much more powerfully than flower and beast. A calling he has not, but he has forces that manifest themselves where they are because their being consists solely in their manifestation and are as little able to abide inactive as life, which, if it stood still only a second, would no longer be life. Now one might call out to the man, use your force. Yet to this imperative would be given the meaning that it was man's task to use his force. It is not so. Rather, each one really uses his force without first looking upon this as his calling. At all times, everyone uses as much force as he possesses. One does say of a beaten man that he ought to have exerted his force more, but one forgets that if in the moment of succumbing he had had the force to exert his forces, bodily forces, he would not have failed to do it. Even if it was only the discouragement of a minute, this was yet a destitution of force a minute long. Forces may assuredly be sharpened and redoubled, especially by hostile resistance or friendly assistance. But where one misses their application, one may be sure of their absence too. 
one can strike fire out of a stone, but without the blow none comes out. In like manner, a man too needs impact. Now for this reason that forces always of themselves show themselves operative, the command to use them would be superfluous and senseless. To use his forces is not man's calling and task, but is his act, real and extant at all times. Force is only a simpler word for manifestation of force. Now as this rose is a true rose to begin with, this nightingale always a true nightingale, so I am not for the first time a true man when I fulfill my calling, live up to my destiny, but I am a true man from the start. My first babble is the token of the life of a true man. The struggles of my life are the outpourings of his force. My last breath is the last exhalation of the force of the man. The true man does not lie in the future, an object of longing, but lies existent and real in the present. Whatever and whoever I may be, joyous and suffering, a child or a graybeard, in confidence or doubt, in sleep or in waking, I am it, I am the true man. But if I am man, and have really found in myself him whom religious humanity designated as the distant goal, then everything truly human is also my own. What was ascribed to the idea of humanity belongs to me. That freedom of trade, for example, which humanity has yet to attain, and which, like an enchanting dream, people remove to humanity's golden future, I take by anticipation as my property, and carry it on for the time in the form of smuggling. There may indeed be but few smugglers who have sufficient understanding to thus account to themselves for their doings, but the instinct of egoism replaces their consciousness. Above, I have shown the same thing about freedom of the press. Everything is my own, therefore I bring back to myself what wants to withdraw from me. But above all, I always bring myself back when I have slipped away from myself to any tributariness. But this, too, is not my calling, but my natural act. Enough. There is a mighty difference whether I make myself the starting point or the goal. As the latter, I do not have myself, am consequently still alien to myself, am my essence, my true essence, and this true essence, alien to me, will mock me as a spook of a thousand different names. Because I am not yet I, Another, like God, the true man, the truly pious man, the rational man, the freeman, etc., is I, my ego. Still far from myself, I separate myself into two halves, of which one, the one unattained and to be fulfilled, is the true one. The one, the untrue, must be brought as a sacrifice, to wit, the unspiritual one. The other, the true, is to be the whole man, to wit, the spirit. Then it is said, the spirit is man's proper essence, or man exists as man only spiritually. Now there is a greedy rush to catch the spirit, as if one would then have bagged himself, and so, in chasing after himself, one loses sight of himself, whom he is. And as one stormily pursues his own self, the never attained, so one also despises shrewd people's rule to take men as they are, and prefers to take them as they should be, and for this reason hounds everyone on after his should-be self, and endeavors to make all into equally entitled, equally respectable, equally moral or rational men. Yes, if men were what they should be, could be, if all men were rational, all loved each other as brothers, then it would be a paradisical life. 
All right, men are as they should be, can be. What should they be? Surely not more than they can be, and what can they be? Not more, again, than they can, than they have the competence, the force to be. But this they really are, because what they are not, they are incapable of being. For to be capable means really to be. One is not capable for anything that one really is not. One is not capable of anything that one does not really do. Could a man blinded by cataract see? Oh yes, if he had his cataract successfully removed. But now he cannot see because he does not see. Possibility and reality always coincide. One can do nothing that one does not, as one does nothing that one cannot. The singularity of this assertion vanishes when one reflects that the words, it is possible that, almost never contain another meaning than, I can imagine that. For instance, it is possible for all men to live rationally, that is, I can imagine that all, etc. Now since my thinking cannot, and accordingly does not, cause all men to live rationally, but this must still be left to the men themselves, general reason is for me only thinkable, a thinkableness, but as such in fact a reality that is called a possibility only in reference to what I cannot bring to pass, to wit, the rationality of others. So far as depends on you, all men might be rational, for you have nothing against it. Nay, so far as your thinking reaches, you perhaps cannot discover any hindrance either. And accordingly, nothing does stand in the way of the thing in your thinking. It is thinkable to you. As men are not all rational, though, it is probable that they cannot be so. If something which one imagines to be easily possible is not, or does not happen, then one may be assured that something stands in the way of the thing, and that it is impossible. Our time has its art, science, etc. The art may be bad in all conscience, but may one say that we deserved to have a better, and could have it if we only would? We have just as much art as we can have. Our art of today is the only art possible, and therefore real, at the time. Even in the sense to which one might at last still reduce the word possible, that it should mean future, it retains the full force of the real, if one says, it is possible that the sun will rise tomorrow, this means only, for today, tomorrow is the real future. For I suppose there is hardly need of the suggestion that a future is real future only when it has not yet appeared. Yet wherefore this dignifying of a word? If the most prolific misunderstanding of thousands of years were not in ambush behind it, if this single concept of the little word possible were not haunted by all the spooks of possessed men, its contemplation should trouble us little here. The thought, it was just now shown, rules the possessed world. Well then, possibility is nothing but thinkableness, and innumerable sacrifices have hitherto been made to hideous thinkableness. It was thinkable that men might become rational, thinkable that they might know Christ, thinkable that they might become moral and enthusiastic for the good, thinkable that they might all take refuge in the church's lap, thinkable that they might meditate, speak, and do nothing dangerous to the state, thinkable that they might be obedient subjects. But because it was thinkable, it was, so ran the inference, possible, and further, because it was possible to men, right here lies the deceptive point, because it is thinkable to me, it is possible to men, therefore they ought to be so. It was their calling, 
And finally, one is to take men only according to this calling, only as called men, not as they are, but as they ought to be. And the further inference? Man is not the individual, but man is a thought, an ideal, to which the individual is related not even as the child to the man, but as a chalk point to a point thought of, or as a finite creature to the eternal creator, or, according to modern views, as the specimen to the species. Here then comes to light the glorification of humanity, the eternal, immortal, for whose glory the individual must devote himself and find his immortal renown in having done something for the spirit of humanity. Thus the thinkers rule in the world as long as the age of priests or of schoolmasters lasts, and what they think of is possible, but what is possible must be realized. They think an ideal of man, which for the time is real only in their thoughts, but they also think the possibility of carrying it out, and there is no chance for dispute. The carrying out is really thinkable. It is an idea. But you and I, we may indeed be people of whom a Krumacher can think that we might yet become good Christians. If, however, he wanted to labor with us, we should soon make it palpable to him that our Christianity is only thinkable, but in other respects impossible. If he grinned on and on at us with his obtrusive thoughts, his good belief, he would have to learn that we do not at all need to become what we do not like to become. And so it goes on, far beyond the most pious of the pious. If all men were rational, if all did right, if all were guided by philanthropy, etc. Reason, right, philanthropy are put before the eyes of men as their calling, as the goal of their aspiration. But what does being rational mean? Giving oneself a hearing? No. Reason is a book full of laws, which are all enacted against egoism. History hitherto is the history of the intellectual man. After the period of sensuality, history proper begins, the period of intellectuality, spirituality, non-sensuality, supersensuality, nonsensicality. Man now begins to want to be and become something. What? Good, beautiful, true, more precisely, moral, pious, agreeable, etc. He wants to make of himself a proper man, something proper. Man with a capital M is his goal, his ought, his destiny, calling, task, his ideal. He is to himself a future, otherworldly he. And what makes a proper fellow of him? Being true, being good, being moral, and the like. Now he looks askance at everyone who does not recognize the same what, seek the same morality, have the same faith. He chases out separatists, heretics, sects, etc. No sheep, no dog, exerts itself to become a proper sheep, a proper dog. No beast has its essence appear to it as a task, as a concept that it has to realize. It realizes itself in living itself out, in dissolving itself passing away. It does not ask to be or to become anything other than it is. Do I mean to advise you to be like the beasts? That you ought to become beasts is an exhortation which I certainly cannot give you, as that would again be a task, an ideal. How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour? In works of labor or of skill I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. It would be the same, too, as if one wished for the beasts that they should become human beings. Your nature is, once for all, a human one, 
You are human natures, human beings. But just because you already are so, you do not still need to become so. Beasts, too, are trained, and a trained beast executes many unnatural things. But a trained dog is no better for itself than a natural one, and has no profit from it, even if it is more companionable for us. Exertions to form all men into moral, rational, pious, human beings, training, were in vogue from of yore. They are wrecked against the indomitable quality of I, against own nature, against egoism. Those who are trained never attain their ideal, and only profess with their mouth the sublime principles, or make a profession, a profession of faith. In face of this profession they must in life acknowledge themselves sinners altogether, and they fall short of their ideal, are weak men, and bear with them the consciousness of human weakness. It is different if you do not chase after an ideal as your destiny, but dissolve yourself as time dissolves everything. The dissolution is not your destiny because it is present time. Yet the culture, the religiousness of men, has assuredly made them free, but only free from one Lord to lead them to another. I have learned by religion to tame my appetite. I break the world's resistance by the cunning that is put in my hand by science. I even serve no man. I am no man's lackey. But then it comes. You must obey God more than man. Just so I am indeed free from irrational determination by my impulses, but obedient to the master reason. I have gained spiritual freedom, freedom of the spirit, but with that I have then become subject to that very spirit. The spirit gives me orders, reason guides me, they are my leaders and commanders. The rational, the servants of the spirit, rule. But if I am not flesh, I am in truth not spirit either. Freedom of the spirit is servitude of me, because I am more than spirit or flesh. Without doubt, culture has made me powerful. It has given me power over all motives, over the impulses of my nature, as well as over the exactions and violences of the world. I know, and have gained the force for it by culture, that I need not let myself be coerced by any of my appetites, pleasures, emotions, etc. I am their master. In like manner I become, through the sciences and arts, the master of the refractory world, whom sea and earth obey, and to whom even the stars must give an account of themselves. The spirit has made me master, but I have no power over the spirit itself. From religion, culture, I do learn the means for the vanquishing of the world, but not how I am to subdue God, too, and become master of Him, for God is the Spirit. And this same Spirit, of which I am unable to become master, may have the most manifold shapes. He may be called God, or national spirit, state, family, reason, also liberty, humanity, man with a capital M. I receive with thanks what the centuries of culture have acquired for me. I am not willing to throw away and give up anything of it. I have not lived in vain. The experience that I have power over my nature and need not be the slave of my appetites shall not be lost to me. The experience that I can subdue the world by culture's means is too dear bought for me to be able to forget it. But I want still more. People ask, what can man do? What can he accomplish? What goods procure and put down the highest of everything as a calling? as if everything were possible to me. If one sees somebody going to ruin in a mania, a passion, etc., as in the huckster spirit, in jealousy, 
The desire is stirred to deliver him out of this possession and to help him to self-conquest. We want to make a man of him. That would be very fine if another possession were not immediately put in the place of the earlier one. But one frees from the love of money him who is a thrall to it only to deliver him over to piety, humanity, or some principle else, and to transfer him to a fixed standpoint anew. This transference from a narrow standpoint to a sublime one is declared in the words that the sense must not be directed to the perishable but to the imperishable alone, not to the temporal but to the eternal, absolute, divine, purely human, etc., to the spiritual. People very soon discerned that it was not indifferent what one set his affections on or what one occupied himself with. They recognized the importance of the object. An object exalted above the individuality of things is the essence of things. Yes, the essence is alone the thinkable in them. It is for the thinking man. Therefore, direct no longer your sense to the things, but your thoughts to the essence. Blessed are they who see not and yet believe. That is, blessed are the thinkers, for they have to do with the invisible and believe in it. Yet even an object of thought that constituted an essential point of contention centuries long comes at last to the point of being no longer worth speaking of. This was discerned, but nevertheless people always kept before their eyes again a self-valid importance of the object, an absolute value of it as if the doll were not the most important thing to the child, the Koran to the Turk. As long as I am not the sole important thing to myself, it is indifferent of what object I make much, and only my greater or lesser delinquency against it is of value. The degree of my attachment and devotion marks the standpoint of my liability to service. The degree of my sinning shows the measure of my ownness. But finally, and in general, one must know how to put everything out of his mind, if only so as to be able to go to sleep. Nothing may occupy us with which we do not occupy ourselves. The victim of ambition cannot run away from his ambitious plans, nor the God-fearing man from the thought of God. Infatuation and possessedness coincide. To want to realize his essence or live comfortably to his concept which with believers in God signifies as much as to be pious, and with believers in humanity means living humanly, is what only the sensual and sinful man can propose to himself. The man, so long as he has the anxious choice between happiness of sense and peace of soul, so long as he is a poor sinner. The Christian is nothing but a sensual man who, knowing of the sacred and being conscious that he violates it, sees in himself a poor sinner. Sensualness, recognized as sinfulness, is Christian consciousness, is the Christian himself. And if sin and sinfulness are now no longer taken into the mouths of moderns, but instead of that, egoism, self-seeking, selfishness, and the like engage them, if the devil has been translated into the unman or egoistic man, is the Christian less present then than before? Is not the old discord between good and evil? Is not a judge over us, man? Is not a calling, the calling to make oneself man, left? If they no longer name it calling, but task, or very likely duty, the change of name is quite correct, because man is not, like God, a personal being that can call, but outside the name, the thing remains as of old. 
Everyone has a relation to objects, and more, everyone is differently related to them. Let us choose as an example that book to which millions of men had a relation for 2,000 years, the Bible. What is it, what was it, to each? Absolutely only what he made out of it. For him who makes to himself nothing at all out of it, it is nothing at all. For him who uses it as an amulet, it has solely the value, the significance of a means of sorcery. For him who, like children, plays with it, it is nothing but a plaything, etc. Now Christianity asks that it shall be the same for all, say, the sacred book or the sacred scriptures. This means as much as that the Christian's view shall also be that of other men, and that no one may be otherwise related to that object. And with this, the ownness of the relation is destroyed, and one mind, one disposition, is fixed as the true, the only true one. In the limitation of the freedom to make of the Bible what I will, the freedom of making in general is limited, and the coercion of a view or a judgment is put in its place. He who should pass the judgment that the Bible was a long error of mankind would judge criminally. In fact, the child who tears it to pieces or plays with it, the Inca Atahualpa who lays his ear to it and throws it away contemptuously when it remains dumb, judges just as correctly about the Bible as the priest who praises in it the word of God, or the critic who calls it a job of men's hands. For how we toss things about is the affair of our option, our free will. We use them according to our heart's pleasure, or more clearly, we use them just as we can. Why, what do the parsons scream about when they see how Hegel and the speculative theologians make speculative thoughts out of the contents of the Bible? Precisely this, that they deal with it according to their heart's pleasure, or proceed arbitrarily with it. But because we all show ourselves arbitrary in the handling of objects, that is, do with them as we like best, at our liking, the philosopher likes nothing so well as when he can trace out an idea in everything, as the God-fearing man likes to make God his friend by everything, and so, for example, by keeping the Bible sacred. Therefore, we nowhere meet such grievous arbitrariness, such a frightful tendency to violence, such stupid coercion, as in this very domain of our own free will. If we proceed arbitrarily in taking the sacred objects thus or so, how is it then that we want to take it ill of the parson spirits if they take us just as arbitrarily in their fashion and esteem us worthy of the heretic's fire or of another punishment, perhaps of the censorship? What a man is, he makes out of things. As you look at the world, so it looks at you again. Then the wise advice makes itself heard again at once. You must only look at it rightly, unbiasedly, etc., as if the child did not look at the Bible rightly and unbiasedly when it makes it a plaything. That shrewd precept is given us by Feuerbach. One does look at things rightly when one makes of them what one will. By things, objects in general are here understood, such as God, our fellow men, a sweetheart, a book, a beast, etc. And therefore, the things and the looking at them are not first, but I am, my will is. One will bring thoughts out of the things, will discover reason in the world, will have sacredness in it. Therefore one shall find them, seek and ye shall find. What I will seek, I determine. I want, for example, to get edification from the Bible, it is to be found. I want to read and test the Bible thoroughly, 
My outcome will be a thorough instruction and criticism, to the extent of my powers. I elect for myself what I have a fancy for, and in electing, I show myself arbitrary. Connected with this is the discernment that every judgment which I pass upon an object is the creature of my will, and that discernment again leads me to not losing myself in the creature, the judgment, but remaining the creator, the judger, who is ever creating anew. All predicates of objects are my statements, my judgments, my creatures. If they want to tear themselves loose from me and be something for themselves, or actually overawe me, then I have nothing more pressing to do than to take them back into their nothing, into me, the Creator. God, Christ, Trinity, morality, the good, etc., are such creatures, of which I must not merely allow myself to say that they are truths, but also that they are deceptions. As I once willed and decreed their existence, so I want to have license to will their non-existence too. I must not let them grow over my head, must not have the weakness to let them become something absolute, whereby they would be eternalized and withdrawn from my power and decision. With that, I should fall a prey to the principle of stability, the proper life principle of religion, which concerns itself with creating sanctuaries that must not be touched, eternal truths, in short, that which shall be sacred, and depriving you of what is yours. The object makes us into possessed men in its sacred form just as in its profane, as a supersensuous object just as it does as a sensuous one. The appetite or mania refers to both, and avarice and longing for heaven stand on a level. When the rationalists wanted to win people for the sensuous world, Lavater preached the longing for the invisible. The one party wanted to call forth emotion, the other motion, activity. The conception of objects is altogether diverse, even as God, Christ, the world, were and are conceived of in the most manifold wise. In this everyone is a dissenter, and after bloody combats so much has at last been attained that opposite views about one and the same object are no longer condemned as heresies worthy of death. The dissenters reconcile themselves to each other. But why should I only dissent, think otherwise about a thing? Why not push the thinking otherwise to its last extremity, that of no longer having any regard at all for the thing, and therefore thinking its nothingness, crushing it? Then the conception itself has an end, because there is no longer anything to conceive of. Why am I to say, let us suppose, God is not Allah, not Brahma, not Jehovah, but God, but not God is nothing but a deception? Why do people brand me if I am an atheist? Because they put the creature above the Creator. They honor and serve the creature more than the Creator, and require a ruling object, that the subject may be right submissive. I am to bend beneath the Absolute. I ought to. By the realm of thoughts, Christianity has completed itself. The thought is that inwardness in which all the world's lights go out. All existence becomes existenceless. The inward man, the heart, the head, is all in all. This realm of thoughts awaits its deliverance, awaits, like the Sphinx, Oedipus' key word to the riddle, that it may enter in at last to its death. I am the annihilator of its continuance, for in the Creator's realm it no longer forms a realm of its own, not a state in the state, but a creature of my creative thoughtlessness. Only together and at the same time with the benumbed thinking world can the world of Christians, Christianity, and religion itself come to its downfall. 
Only when thoughts run out are there no more believers. To the thinker, his thinking is a sublime labor, a sacred activity, and it rests on a firm faith, the faith in truth. At first, praying is a sacred activity. Then this sacred devotion passes over into a rational and reasoning thinking, which, however, likewise retains in the sacred truth its underangeable basis of faith, and is only a marvelous machine that the spirit of truth winds up for its service. Free thinking and free science busy me, for it is not I that am free, not I that busy myself, but thinking is free and busies me, with heaven and the heavenly or divine, that is, properly, with the world and the worldly, not this world, but another world. It is only the reversing and deranging of the world, a busying with the essence of the world, therefore a derangement. The thinker is blind to the immediateness of things and incapable of mastering them. He does not eat, does not drink, does not enjoy. For the eater and drinker is never the thinker. Nay, the latter forgets eating and drinking, his getting on in life, the cares of nourishment, etc., over his thinking. He forgets it as the praying man, too, forgets it. This is why he appears to the forceful son of nature as a queer dick, a fool, even if he does look upon him as holy, just as lunatics appeared so to the ancients. Free thinking is lunacy, because it is pure movement of the inwardness, of the merely inward man, which guides and regulates the rest of the man. The shaman and the speculative philosopher mark the bottom and top rounds on the ladder of the inward man, the Mongol. Shaman and philosopher fight with ghosts, demons, spirits, gods. Totally different from this free thinking is own thinking, my thinking, a thinking which does not guide me, but is guided, continued, or broken off by me at my pleasure. The distinction of this own thinking from free thinking is similar to that of own sensuality, which I satisfy at pleasure, from free, unruly sensuality to which I succumb. Feuerbach, in The Principles of the Philosophy of the Future, is always harping upon being. In this, he too, with all his antagonism to Hegel and the absolute philosophy, is stuck fast in abstraction. For being is abstraction, as is even the I. Only I am not abstraction alone. I am all in all, consequently even abstraction or nothing. I am all and nothing. I am not a mere thought, but at the same time I am full of thoughts, a thought world. Hegel condemns the own, mine, opinion. Absolute thinking is that which forgets that it is my thinking, that I think, and that it exists only through me. But I, as I, swallow up again what is mine, am its master. It is only my opinion, which I can at any moment change, annihilate, take back into myself, and consume. Feuerbach wants to smite Hegel's absolute thinking with unconquered being. But in me, being is as much conquered as thinking is. It is my being, as the other is my thinking. With this, of course, Feuerbach does not get further than to the proof, trivial in itself, that I require the senses for everything, or that I cannot entirely do without these organs. Certainly I cannot think if I do not exist sensuously. But for thinking as well as for feeling, and so for the abstract as well as for the sensuous, I need above all things myself, this quite particular myself, this unique myself. If I were not this one, for instance, Hegel, I should not look at the world as I do look at it. I should not pick out of it that philosophical system which just I as Hegel do, etc.
I should indeed have senses, as do other people too, but I should not utilize them as I do. This book is continued on cassette 10, side 1.